In this episode of the About Death podcast, we do talk about some adult themes. If you've little ones around, grab your headphones now. And a reminder that these conversations are all real and can sometimes be a bit raw. Remember, you've always got the option to pause and to take a break from it. Our show notes contain links to more information about support that you can access. With kids, it's very easy. I mean, at least for me, it's very easy because um, kids want only one thing. They want to play. And when they play, if they are sick or not, it doesn't matter because they can. They, they only have the ability. The adults, unfortunately, they don't have this thing because they have... Um, Obviously, the perception of time and all the baggage from one day to the other that gets bigger and bigger. But kids, they are the best for me because they rest- they are able to restart the day from scratch every day. Hello, you're listening to the About Death podcast and I'm Sam Meikle. Talking about dying and death can make us feel uncomfortable awkward or embarrassed as we're not always sure what to say and when. Through this podcast you'll hear why and how people start talking about dying and death and if they didn't what they wish they might have said and the impact this has had on their lives and on the lives of those they love. Around kitchen tables in pubs and cafes we're having conversations to help you explore how you think, feel and talk about death. And goodness me, what a wonderful way to start these conversations about death with our very first guest, Sarah. Sarah works in the UK's National Health Service, the NHS, where she helps people improve how they organise and deliver care. Before this, she volunteered as a clown in a children's hospital where she helped bring joy and laughter to the days and lives of really, really sick kids and their parents. In this conversation, we're talking about how does she integrate Coco the clown, with Sarah the human, and what all of these experiences have taught her about life and how she now thinks, feels, and talks about death. Welcome to Sarah's story. To start with, Where's your accent from? My accent is from Italy, which is a fantastic country, as you know, <laughs> in the middle of Europe, southern Europe. Um, I come from a place which is called Chieti, which is same latitude as Rome on the Adriatic coast. And it's a lovely place, mountain, sea. Um, it's a really quiet city um, town, actually. And yes, I moved then uh, four years ago, almost five, to London. And you said it's a fantastic country, as I know, because my family, um, my mother's side is from Italy. Um, So, yes, Yes, I I get the food and the conversation (laughs) and the talking with our hands, which you can't see us doing in this recording. I'm sure many of our listeners can hear there's an energy about you when you speak. And when I first met you, there is a big energy in your presence And I think you give some of the most remarkable hugs I've ever had in my life, (laughs) that you really feel held when Sarah holds you. And it's kind of this, I don't even know if it's a transference of energy, but it's just kind of a respect if I see you as a human. And I wanted to talk a little bit about your work in clowning. 
in my mind, there's a link between the way that you hold yourself and your presence as a clown. Yeah. Can you talk to us a little about that? Sure. So I did clowning when I um, started volunteering with Red Cross in Italy, mm-hmm. in Bologna. And uh, I just, I thought it would have something I always wanted to do. But I didn't know if I was good or I would have liked it. So I said, okay, let's give it a try. It was a one-month course where I uh, found a lot of um, actually good friends that have stayed for me, you know, ever since. And um, it was really transformative. I have to say, I think it's one of the best thing I ever did. So clowning is not... You have to forget about all the things that you think about clowning, which is about um, making a show, doing a show, and actually making people laugh and perform in a way. So the clowning I'm talking about, which is the one that we try to use in the ward, in hospitals, in care homes, in intensive care unit, in the street as well... Um, it's it's a way to create a connection. And that's very, very, very difficult because um, so it's, which I guess ties in with the hack that you were mentioning. So it's a way to create connection to a deeper level, like taking off and kind of breaking all the barriers, all the walls that we have about Um, image, judgment of ourselves, or how should I look like, how should I behave, you know, what is my title saying? And so that's because, that's why why it's so easy to do that with a clown that has a red nose and it's a bit silly dressed, you know, like with all, you know, all nonsense and says all the most, you know, terrible jokes in the world always fails. It's always laughing about its own, you know, weaknesses, essentially. essentially. So, obviously, with a clown, you feel in a safe space because there is no judgment, because he's the loser or she is the loser. A clown is neutral, right? There is no... There is nothing about nothing. You can be safe. I was called Coco. So, that was like a chicken, right? And because my hat was a chicken, you know, the, the hat that you have for covering eggs. So that was a hat, which is a red chicken. It was fantastic. And then like funny shoes um, and a lot of, you know, some painting on a face. Very simple, but some painting. It is not easy. It is very difficult to do that when you get into a ward. I felt so um, nervous and so um, so nervous about the even the result and how I would do that before just entering a room in the ward. Because in that moment, you just think like, oh my goodness, how is it going to go? And what am I going to do? That's the killing question. Because what am I going to do is exactly opposite to what you should think. You should just be in the moment. You should just be improvising. It's the concept of improvisation. Um, And you should just try to, it's about creating a connection. Like Looking in the eyes is quite key. And just being there for that person. You make the other person feel accepted. You try to give um, people a break, a distraction. That's the most important. That's why the fun moment is such a remarkable experience in a day in a hospital for a, for a kid or even for an adult person because they, you have to think, they're always thinking about illnesses and what's wrong with them and how they can probably, perhaps they have to undergo a surgery and so they're thinking about how am I going to do, you know, all that constant thought. And the day in a hospital is such a long day 
and it's not very interesting and it's very stationary and you only have things that are done to you because the doctors come and they do an injection the doctors come and they ask how are you but it's always like a top-down relationship as well in most of the cases unless you have really you know enlightened uh, clinicians and also the architecture can help quite a lot or not help in most of cases so um, then you have this clown and you try to start to do jokes, which I would have lots of, um, you know, try to have some quick uh, tricks uh, with cards or with some magic, you know, uh, trick. Uh, other things were just about balloons or trying to improvise or even just entering a door and, and saying a nonsense thing like... Uh, oh, what's that on the window? There is a person that is just climbing the window. And and you, and what do you mean? Or not even talking. You know, sometimes I was uh, doing this um, about um, with a language that you couldn't understand. So you would ask me a question and I would say like, it's incredible how much goes with non-verbal communication. And we always forget because most of our, uh, you know, interaction are just verbal. But you lose out on so many things. Um, so and so, what happens then is that when you obviously the the most rewarding situation is when a moment is when you have that smile or that laugh from a kid. Now, um, that is the most remarkable moment when you actually get something that comes back to you like a mm. feedback say i'm doing well but that's also very dangerous because um as i said at the beginning you are thinking you know how how am i going to do you know what do i do next to get there to make it you know mm. and sometimes you can't imagine even if you um don't receive a feedback straight away mm-hmm. you perhaps may have changed that day because you definitely are a disruptive element in the day anyway. And you may have changed and they don't tell you. You know, people are not the same in giving you feedback. And sometimes we left um, some uh, cloud, like paper cloud, which are like, you know, things where they could write something to clown Coco and other clown with me. Um, and they wrote some comments, which I would have never imagined. And it was, you know, sometimes people didn't talk at all. And they said like, this is the best part of, you know, Clown Coco is the best part of my day. Or something like, you make my mum smile. You know, the mum and the parents are with them all the time. So for a kid, actually getting a distraction or helping the parents is probably, because this is the most important thing they care, yeah. is the most important thing for them as well. Um, the thing about the hug is interesting because... Um, uh, that when we did in the street, um, you can't imagine how lonely people are in the street. Mm. And I wasn't, I wasn't on my own because obviously there is a whole um, safety, you know, issue around that. But the fact that you have a red nose and you have a mask and you are all silly dressed and you are with other people, actually, the hug, some hug that I gave to people, they said exactly like you said, or they said similar things. And you can't imagine how much people stay in that hug because it's about touch and it's about feeling touched and uh, and feeling that energy or that, you know, like love in whatever sort of shape it is, which is very rare. People rarely hug each other. I honestly, I derive so much energy in when I hug people, mm-hmm. myself as well. And for me, I don't know, it's just... If I could hug a person every day, 
like if I could have a good hug every day, that would make my day together with a good laugh that I feel in my stomach, like I feel like butterflies and energy. So if I go back to the hospital, um, no matter what you, you can do, you can change the situation, you can take away people from suffering, but what you can do, you can put, you, you can help people to just not think about that for a second. And even if you don't think about that for a second, can really change your day. A surgeon once said to me, I said, if you could change one thing in healthcare, what would it be? And he said, Sam, I'm going to give you three. And I was like, okay, you're a surgeon, you can have three. And he said, I would want more time, more touch and compassion for each interaction in healthcare. And for me, I was like, that's what humanity is all about. And that's what you're describing is that kind of touch and not and being really present in those moments. Can I take you back into being kind of standing outside the door of a ward where, you know, there's a really sick child and you're in a clown and you're bringing your best self of being really present, thinking, how, how does that change that presence of you're going to go in and have a connection with a child who may be really ill and death not be may not be very far away from them. How do you bring yourself to that interaction? So with kids, it's very easy. I mean, at least for me, it's very easy because um, kids want only one thing. They want to play. And when they play, if they are sick or not, it doesn't matter because they can. They, they only have the ability, the adult Unfortunately, they don't have this thing because they have um, obviously the perception of time and all the baggage from one day to the other that gets bigger and bigger. But kids until, I've seen kids until um, perhaps um, 9, 10, 11 years old and they are the best for me because they, rest- they are able to restart the day from scratch every day. I think the fact that you think uh, it's a kid and uh, I need to try and distract them. I need to try and find something to distract them from that moment. Uh, totally take away all the sickness and all the background context. Like it's like it's it's really like a role play, and like putting yourself into the shoes of that silly, and trying to do you know. Something that, you know, j- just living the present moment. Mm. Now, there were times in which a specific scenery or a specific bit of a machine or a specific sentence said or even a look in the eye or something reminds you of something that you have gone through. And that's a difficult moment where you actually think, crap. It drags you again in that situation as a human, as, as me, as Sarah, not just a clown. So it drags you in that situation where you just relate to that so strongly that you can, um, you can actually get so distracted that you can have the tears coming into your face and you have to be really strong in trying and think, I'm not that one, I'm someone else now. Yeah. And I'm here for that person I always try to be very tough because um, because ultimately you're there for them. That's what you should remember. And because you're there for them, you should think about 
even if that's coming to you, you can deal with that later. You still have to deal with that. That's why we had psychological support after supervision session every month. But it's something that you can, you know, they say that there has to be a distance. You have to be able to distance yourself from that one. So empathy, yes, but not feeling as it was yours. Because otherwise you can be there and you can be helpful. Also, because honestly speaking, you have to be very ruthless with that with yourself. You are not in that situation. So you're lucky. And you can never, even if you say, people say, oh, I, I also do say that, although I know I don't mean it, but I also do say that, oh, I really know what you're going through. Or I can really imagine that. You can't. You can't because you never, because even if it was the same type of illness, even if it was the same situation, we are all different. Yeah. You know, you're there for them. That's not about you. That's about them do more full stuff or to just say something else or to just say the most silly thing to your partner. You're never alone. You're always with a partner. And and then and then you just think, I need to get across the line. Yeah. Because there is a fixed time. What is also very important is that there is a fixed time and you're not, I mean, in that type of service we were doing in the world, it was never over two hours and two hours in the total world. So you would go back and forth, you know, from mm-hmm. each room. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a tendency, I mean, in my case, there was a big weakness is to overrun it, but it's not healthy because mm-hmm. then you get, you know, burnt. Sometimes you can. And you also don't know exactly when it will happen. So you need to be really careful with yourself as well. Yeah. Can you talk a little about what it's like then to step away and how you integrate the clown with Sarah the human and what has that changed about what you know about dying and death so um, I think integrate with myself in my everyday life I probably haven't been so good so my boyfriend uh, told me Sarah you have to be just just laugh about your you know what you do wrong or your stuff I'm very critical self-critical of myself and so therefore I can't forgive me for stuff and I keep thinking about something I've done wrong that I could have done better very very heavy with myself but um but I'm not with others so he always told me Sarah you just have to laugh more about you know just you know, the things that you don't do well, just just take it light, you know. Just think about it as a, you know, another time you've just gone through something very silly or you have done, you know, that thing. Um, make a joke out of it. Why not? And that's why I, I love kids, because um, I love the way they experience something and they say, okay, I've done this. Today you went this way. Tomorrow you can go another way. And for them, it's just almost an... And that's what I'm trying to hold on to. It's always a sort of a trial. Mm-hmm. And it's a trial. It's, it's in that inquisitive researcher attitude that, you know, I'm trying this and I'm getting this result. This result. Tomorrow I'm trying this again and I'm getting this result. And then tomorrow I'm trying it again and perhaps I'm getting another thing. And that's okay. That's, you know, that's what I aim to. Um, in terms of how that helped me with death and how I think about death, I think, so, okay, I have a tricky relationship with death because when I think about death, I have to admit that it's really frightening. 
I can't think about it because you know what I think? I don't know if it happens to you, but I think about a black hole. And I think about this timeless, infinite period where I will be in this black hole, which I have no idea whatsoever what it is and how it works and how it will be. And if I will be with my loved ones or not, and when actually I will be able to reconnect with them again. So for me, it's such, when I think, I tend to not think too much about that because when I think about it, I think, because I'm th- unfortunately I'm thinking about death as a, with, with the constraints of these systems. So time, space, people, matter, like, you know, people in the human shape. And I can't get hold of any of those things because obviously, you know, you, who, who knows what, what is there. It's tricky when I think about it. So when I think about the death itself, like the after death, as in what is that kind of limbo, then I'm really scared and I'm paralyzed. But when I think about the dying moment, I think about um, the fact that I think my hopes is that there is no, you know, like uh, what a good death is, you know, that mm-hmm. type of question. My, there is no suffering. You're not alone and you're with your loved ones. And the other thing is no regrets. I don't want to have regrets. That's probably the most important. No, all of these things, actually, I have thought about them, are really important. Because obviously, if you are alone, I mean, I can't imagine to die alone, honestly. I couldn't wish anyone to die alone. So I think definitely not alone, um, definitely not suffering, and no regrets about the things that really matter to me. But in terms of when I face death, I don't know if it, this is some of your mm-hmm. next question or can I go? Go for it. So there was a particular... So I was there. My two particular times when um, I faced actually death of, with a really loved one that really... Um, stayed with me is when Titi died and I was there and when my grandmother died. There were other episodes but these two moments I think they really I think they are why somehow they are why I decided to end up and work for hospitals and in the NHS and I always thought I want to make this better whatever better means for you, because obviously it does have different meaning, but different levels as well, but whatever it is, just get better for yourself. The life-changing experience I was telling you about was when I um, met this um, special, very, very special kid in Bologna. So I, I only had moved to Bologna one month earlier. And then my mom, who is a teacher, um, she said, Sarah, this is my one of my pupil and um, he got transferred urgently to Bologna hospital and she said why don't you go and check over them and see if they need something and I still remember that night when after work I came in the world it was totally out of time it was nine o'clock in the evening I didn't even know the opening time of the hospital I just went there very naively and I got into that room and I still remember that moment when the mom of this kid uh told me you are the daughter of, you know, the teacher, because uh, she said you have the same smile. And since then, we never left each other. Like we stayed, we, they were on their own in Bologna anyway. So we almost become like a family. 
and this kid had a very rare um, cancer. It was seven at that time, and it was unbelievable. You can imagine. We would have dinner, for instance, every other day together. So I was helping with all the practical stuff because the mum always had to be there. But for instance, going to the to the shop center to do the food shopping, going to, um, for instance, I was always, because it was a really special kid, always very, very curious. I was so intelligent. So it was always after one other thing. For instance, he was doing a collection of stickers around, you know, one collection. And then he would um, get passionate about science and about that. And so we were always trying to, we always researching and trying to feed his curiosity and trying to feed his days as well. So I would go and find, I don't know, that type of stickers. I would go and find some books. I would go and find something else to give him more stimulus. Um, so... The good, the incredible thing is that when you were with him, you would never think about his illness. And that's incredible. That's why I'm saying with kids is very easy. Because, um, because with kids, what is very, very easy is that they, they, they really uh, force you to be in that moment because they are present and they just don't think, you know, with an adult, it's like about, oh, you know, I have this cancer, you know, and, uh, you know, I've, I don't know, doctor said I have six months left. I mean, obviously, doctors don't talk about this to kids. They talk perhaps about the parents. But the parents, when you are all together, can't talk about it either, because it's always another way to transform the illness. And to, and it's all also about the way, I was so fascinating about the way they would explain a cancer to kid of that age, because it was about, for instance, a little bacteria. So he had a um, cancer in his body in the shin and a way to talk about it is almost like a challenge mm. so it's like um, so you have a bacteria that is in there so we have to f- defeat him and we have a, this battle we need to get stronger we need to which if you think it's incredible and it's a very positive and constructive way to tackle it and we should all do this to be honest because in adults you have this totally unhelpful destructive way to actually say oh you know you have a cancer you immediately are dead and that's unfortunately also part of it is the, unfortunately, the way advertising and communication gets um, um, transferred across, promoted. It's a lot of time, unfortunately, you connect that to death. Mm-hmm. With him, his name uh, was Tiziano, um, and I used to call him Titi. Um, so with him, it was... It was incredible because uh, every day was a different discovery, a different journey. It was incredibly, you mentioned curiosity. It was incredibly curious and inquisitive, incredibly. And so we would go to the supermarket and we would meet people. But all the possible, you know, when you say serendipity, all the possible incredible coincidence and connection with very interesting people. When Titi died, uh, I was there and I was with the whole of his family. And it was very, it was really, I was really touched and that stayed with me. And I still remember the sounds and I still remember the exact situation. Because I was, I I was practically part of the family, but yet I wasn't a family Mm. from a blood point of view. And I always have been in that relationship um, trying to be the strong one, trying to be supportive for them. It's, it's a little bit like what I told you about the clowning. It's you're there for them, not for me. It's not about me. So then when he died, I almost, I to be honest, I still can't get very much around that because I always, always 
put myself aside and try to be there for them. So I was smiling. I was, I mean, not in that moment, obviously. I was crying like, you know, like a fountain. But I, after, we even dressed him, you know, f- for the funeral together. And um, I mean, this is a very strong, actually very strong family. And they always all try to sometimes make jokes or sometimes take it lighter. So it's different from family where it's just, you know, like heavy. And it's, so you, I was helped in that sense. But it was always about, you know, I was always projecting myself and trying to do something that was helpful. I never really stopped there and thought, what am I feeling? I don't think even I allowed myself to think what I, what I was feeling. And therefore, I was almost like with an um, analgesia or some sort of that thing. With my grandmother, it was different because... Because... So I was, so first of all, it was really a, um, a special time because I was working in London already. So you have to consider that, I mean, what are the chances that I could have been there when she died? <laughs> I mean, my brother uh, wasn't there. My other brother wasn't there. My mom wasn't there. So it's just, it's just incredible. I don't know how it happened. But anyway, so what happened was that I got one month where I thought I was doing the Camino de Santiago or I was doing something else for myself. And I only took that month off between finishing on purpose and starting my real, like, kind of permanent job in the NHS. And I've never done that. But, you know, I said, why not this time? I'll allow that to myself. So I took that time off. And then... I went back home, it was Easter, but then my grandma went worse a little bit. I mean, she was already ill and it got worse. So then I ended up staying there. And then we would go to the hospital and I still remember where there, were, there was one occasion, which I remember very, very clearly, where I don't think I have done enough and I only wish I could have said something to protect her. Um, and probably in fairness you can't do anything but you know there is this awful thing in the hospital where when they do an examination they put something um, in a um, um, esophagus uh, but they did mistake the exam and uh, essentially they were almost um, they, they, they were in their in their in their lungs and but for for hours so just because they didn't wait just because they didn't take the best person to actually perform that exam and also they didn't get the machine on time before actually starting it so it was just something that could have been easily avoided and I still remember her coughing out of the room um I didn't want to go in obviously they asked you to be out I was just thinking how is she feeling and she is totally um you know on her own and I can't even imagine, I can't even imagine that. And one of the things I, I think is that you you should never be alone in a hospital. I mean, why? Why is that protocol where you have to be outside the room? I don't understand. So I could never face it, to be honest. And that's probably why I'm so sensitive about it. But I, I can't even imagine what you can feel. Yeah. So, um, so she was... Um, she was like this, like almost in a coma. Then she got better for half a, like, I don't know, a few hours, perhaps four or six hours. And then my mom said, uh, um, so other people said, you should go home, you know, having uh, like some dinner and then go home. And then we did. And then my mom said, I think, Sarah, you have to, there was obviously a person with her, like a carer that we really trusted. And she, she loved her so much. And she had been there for a lot of years. 
and she was with her. But then my mum said, um, because she was really tired, she kind of was with her for so many months and years. And then in that particular month, she was never sleeping and always being there. She was totally exhausted. So uh, my mum said, okay, Sarah, but you, just, why don't you go back to the hospital? I'll come. I'll come in half an hour. So I went back to the hospital and it's almost if she if she waited for... Uh, sorry, it's very difficult. It's almost if she waited um, for someone of her family to be there. I literally remember I was in the room. I just had got there. Obviously, she was without consciousness. Um, and... I still remember when she stopped breathing. It was like a candle. It was just... It was like a candle that you just, I don't know, you just um, breathe on it and then it's gone. And that's what life is. And you just think... And I just thought, you know, that something, I know, probably it wouldn't have changed, but I, I didn't do, I couldn't do anything in that situation. I couldn't do anything. And the doctors were wrong because that's not a human way to help a patient. It's not because there is so much about, it's not just about the exam. First of all, it was totally wrong because the machine has to be there. It's just a coordination issues. Come on, it's not a big deal. But when you are in the, on the first line and you feel responsible, the thing about not doing enough, it's just a, just, just something that will never leave you if you, and, and you can't really help because I know there is not much you can do, but yet you think there should be something. We took a little break here in our conversation to breathe, to smile, and just to be with each other. Sarah wanted to continue our conversation. But just before we start again, I'm going to take a moment to be and invite you to see how you're feeling and if you're okay to continue. Having had these two very profound experiences, how has that shaped what you believe or hope for for your future? So I think that it helped me to um, think like more about the present and more about doing the stuff that matters to me and to the people and doing stuff that are helpful and matter for the people I love. Um, and that's why the regret thing is so important to me because um, we always get um, distracted by everyday life and by all this commitment and we have to go there and we have to do that who says we have to do that I mean ultimately when you're dying it's just about that moment mm -hmm. it's just about simple stuff like being there I think really trying to be more present doing the things that are really important to you and then with the clown experience I guess what what that tells me about how you live life is just you just have to take it you know that laugh is actually really important is you know life is what it is and you can't change 
um, whatever will happen to you. But what you can change is the jo- how you live the journey and actually smile and just laugh. Like you can relate to wh- when you laugh, when you are making a joke, you can easily relate to them and you can create a connection about something that is just, you know, just positive. And it breaks down the barriers yeah. and the preconceived notions yeah. of who you are and who I am. Yeah. And you've just got this moment of connection that's so pure between two people. Yeah. And it doesn't need to last an eternity. It's just meeting human to human in that moment. Exactly. And that's exactly what happens because you just feel like, wow, you know, you're normal as well. You know, you can laugh about this stuff. It's just, you know, we can have fun and that's okay. Uh, yeah. What one piece of advice would you give to someone who wanted to talk to a loved one about death and dying? I mean, the first piece of advice is talk about it. Because I was reflecting on that. But so I, I guess I have talked a lot about, uh, you know, death, give, you know, thinking about that, those experiences. And yet I didn't with my loved ones. And that was, that's why I'm saying just talk about it. Because even now I realize, and I was actually thinking on my way here that I should do that more. When my, for instance, my mom, my mom is fantastic. She always jokes about, you know, this. And she says, when I'm not going to be here anymore, you just, um, just laugh, you know, just you keep smiling and laugh and have music. And I always say, mom, I don't want even to think about that. Let's not talk about it. That's not an option. As if it would never happen, obviously it will. And I'm just thinking, what if we could just actually talk about it more in a very positive way and maybe laugh and maybe even um, think about stuff that I could do after or she would like to do, you know, as a little project. For instance, I it would really help me to continue something that, a loved one that is not there anymore would have loved. So for instance, if we were to start a project together and then I could keep it, or maybe she, I mean, I'm awful with plants, but she loves them. You know, even something around that, I don't know, like a little garden or something. I think those things really um, uh, give you a lot of meaning and a lot of, um, uh, you know, reason to actually try and transform that loss into something that can help others. And it can help you in the first place, but it also can help perhaps others. You know, you can start talking about plants and gardening. Actually, this could be a really good idea. I should. Uh, yeah, I could, <laughs> I could think about that. But, you know, like, so, and I always avoid the topic, essentially. What I do is I just shut the topic down. Mm-hmm. I don't talk about it, you know, with my family, which I love, yeah. which is actually what I will miss the most, obviously, mm-hmm. with my friends and with my boyfriend my brother so I was thinking why and I guess the answer is pretty clear I mean because I just don't want to face it and I I clearly fear it for all the reason we have said but I think I think we should um, I I think the best advice is talk about it and uh, perhaps also get some help around it because for Mm -hmm. instance I have I have studied it in some ways. I've read about it. I've been in those situations and yet I'm not able to talk about it. So I couldn't even imagine if I didn't do any of that. So I think share, talk, just don't avoid it um, as a taboo because it will become a taboo. 
and try to prepare. I mean, my dad told me uh, a few weeks ago, he said, ancient people would say, uh, think about death three times a day so that you're prepared. And I was like, wow, it's actually so true. It can be so sad, but actually it's not sad because we, and I was thinking, wow, just our society is not equipped for this. We just live life as if it was immortal, permanent, eternal. And yet, death is so much around us. Mm. We just don't look at it as, a, as, as well as love. So when I did this clowning tour with Patch Adams, um, it was, you know, he says in his workshop, what is the most important thing for people in life? And he has asked this in numerous countries, and it's always love. And yet we don't get taught anything about love in school. How to love, because how to love people is really important. Uh, I mean, it's not that it's not that you can have a recipe and you can, you know, then be successful. But there are lots of things about respect and communication and how to love people. That and how to love yourself and how to love yourself, indeed. And I think that's such an important foundation that so many people miss. And then love becomes something that you do for others, not creating with yourself and for yourself. Um, and I think a lot of heartache would be taken out of the world if we liked ourselves a bit better. But that's my soapbox. <laughs> no, that's actually that's actually an amazing point. Um, I wrote it down because I, I think I would love to talk about this more uh, with you, perhaps, because uh, you're right. It's probably that is the first bit. And in fact, we have lots of problems in loving a relationship because we don't know how to love yourself. That's so true. How, how would you start that conversation with your mum about death and dying? Um, I think I could probably start very honestly saying, mum, I really, well, that would be very selfish, actually. I don't know. I was thinking that I would tell her, mum, I really fear the moment you are not here anymore. How can we prepare for that? But actually, that would be very selfish because she is a mum. And so the most important thing for a mum is always making sure that your children are okay. So I think probably that's not a good start because I would probably break her heart. Even if she wouldn't say that, she would never say that. But I think it's too would be too much how would I do that I think uh, I actually don't know but definitely it would be worth starting that conversation so maybe uh, I don't know if we would need more people in that conversation than just the two of us or if we would need, and just thinking that loud, if we would need, so for instance, nature always helps. A long so, walk in the woods somewhere or on the beach. Yes, <laughs> and perhaps starting talking about the cycle of life, not necessarily on us, human, but maybe on plants, mm -hmm. you know, maybe mm -hmm. on the uh, universe in general. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you think about trees and animals, like, I don't know, bees mm -hmm. or butterflies or whatever. Mm -hmm. Maybe starting from a science point of view. I don't know, I'm just making it up, but perhaps that could be like a long way to approach the topic. And then thinking, okay, so the concept of 
you know, life and death in the animal worlds and then why it is so complicated in humans because obviously there is the whole emotional bit attached to it. And so that could be one way. Um, the other thing could be honestly sharing, but as I said, I think I need to, that's a step further. Uh, honestly sharing, asking it, what do you, how do you think about death? And um, what do you fear about it? Because I think it's all about fear. And then perhaps what would be nice, you know, what would be nice is that in a nice, fun way, you know, the bucket list thing where you actually say, okay, you know what? Let's not have regret. Let's do like a challenge. I don't know, you know, like let's do a challenge for the next uh, one year. 10 things that you ever, you know, you always wanted to do. So if you were to do lots of stuff now together, now that you can, memories and doing stuff, And so I think probably the challenge, you know, the wish list, phrase it in a good way. Let's do a wish list. Because always, let's, let's face it, I live here and I don't live in Italy. And uh, also, probably this conversation could also come when you actually share time together and you invest time together and you do stuff. And we tend not to do much, really. And I think it moves away from this heaviness of guilt and fear and regrets framing that conversation to what we were talking about earlier of how do you bring that presence and that you can't really get this wrong because maybe you say the wrong thing but it it, you know thinking about clowning it's not failure it's just like have another go (laughs) exactly Exactly. (laughs) point to your partner and go okay like what do you think about that like and I think I've, I've been exploring this a little as well and it's really important I'm learning to frame the conversation. So, for example, I sprang the conversation on Ian on a bus because I've been thinking about it for weeks in my head. And I turned to him and I said, will you be my power of attorney? And we were on a bus going to meet people for dinner. <laughs> and he's like, what the hell are you talking about? <laughs> so I'm really mindful that how do we invite that conversation yeah. and help the other personal yeah. people in that conversation get yeah. ready for it? But then once we're in that space, still respectfully, but bring that joy and that presence yeah. and awareness yeah. to having a conversation and letting the narrative go that this needs to be hard and sad and difficult. Yes. Yes, it will be sad and there will be moments of difficulty. Yeah. But... W- the, the view I hold is it's better to have those moments yes. together than regret yeah. never yeah. having that opportunity yeah. to have them. Yeah. I think, to be honest, I think the most important thing is about, I always think, you know, when you, when you know a person is dying or is ill and you go and visit them, and I always think, like, that's too late already because the memories is the most powerful thing. So doing things together, when you actually can enjoy them for both sides, is what counts. I can't probably prevent, you know, I can't stop my mom dying or my dad dying or my boyfriend, or, you know, whatever. But what you can actually do is create those fantastic moments in your life. They say, what is a life worth? A life is worth when you, essentially, you don't have any regrets. And for me, regrets are all about having done something that really made a difference for the people I love. So I guess for me, it's about helping others on something that was really important. It's about those moments of sharing with the people I love. 
I'm so grateful for our conversation. I am too. You really inspired me. I am um, too. Thank you, Sam. Oh, my pleasure. My pleasure. As a kind of a closing thought, is there anything this conversation's brought up that you would like to end with? I think, um, I guess the thing that really resonates with me and really struck me and I will take away is that we're talking about death here as an opportunity to live more. So we have talked, I mean, we have gone in circles and around and actually we have come to the conclusion that death, which is actually a loss of something, should be used as an opportunity to have a much more meaningful life, to, 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 risk, to risk it and to do the things that you want to do. You know, forget about, you know, what you should be doing at 30, what you should be doing at 40, what you should be doing because you are in that job, you know. I mean, who cares? You know, take a sabbatical and yes, still have a plan. But really, it's... And we all know that when you have a time-limited frame, normally you do more than when you don't have it and when it's infinite. So perhaps being more... That make me think about being more humble and, you know... Talking about my grandma, for instance, okay, yes, yes, I could have done more, but that's not the point. Probably, probably thinking, keeping thinking I should have done more puts me in a negative situation, but also negative framework, frame of mind, but also in a probably like a very pretentious mindset where I think I could control everything. I can't really. We're just a piece in this big jigsaw and in the universe. And so, but, but I can, but I can do much more in, in the puzzle now for the people I'm, you know, with now. So I guess it's incredible that we came around the concept of death as an opportunity to live more, to laugh more, to enjoy more, to bond more, you know, to hug more. You know, it's just, it's just incredible that which brings you to the fact that death is, is, is the final you know, in fact, what we were saying before, death is the final destination, but actually here is about the journey, not about the result, which we are constantly bombarded by, uh, you know, this performance society, you know, you have to be cool, you have to be successful. But what is success to you? What is, you know, happiness to you? It can be anything, but it's that thing about the clown, I need a definite, uh, it's key in this. So failure is just another um way to look at an experiment I guess it's just one outcome of an experiment and that's perfectly fine <laughs>